If a clickbait ranking system existed, breathless claims about electric vehicles would be right at the top. In fact, I bet the amount of electricity used by the internet to carry traffic about just EV clickbait would be enough to fuel a million Tesla miles. I'm only half kidding about the energy costs of clickbait. And of course, in the clickbait rankings I'm imagining, I'm talking about subject matters, not clicks for people like Taylor Swift or Beyonce, or The Rock or Elon Musk. Anyway, in this episode, we're going to talk about the subject matter of EVs again. We have to talk about EVs again because, well, a lot of silliness continues to unabated, even as a kind of what well, I'll call an energy rail politique is struggling in recent weeks to break through the news. And also because in recent weeks, I participated in a public debate over the future of EVs. Before getting to our subject du jour, which we could call the coming recognition of an EV rail politique, a word about that debate. I traveled to New York City in mid-October to participate in a classic Oxford-style debate about EVs. And my thanks to Gene Epstein, the insightful host and moderator of the SoHo forum debate series in uh, in Manhattan. The resolution for the debate was, and I quote, between now and 2035, electric vehicles in the consumer market will disappoint environmentalists by remaining a product bought mainly by the well-heeled minority, end quote. Perhaps obviously I took the affirmative on that resolution. My opponent, who took the negative, believing that an EV-dominated future was inevitable and very soon, was a very able and a very pleasant fellow Canadian, though he still lives there. I escaped. <laughs> anyway, you can watch the entire debate at the link I posted on the web for this podcast episode. You might call that link clickbait, just saying. <laughs> at that debate, the rules of engagement embargoed us from talking about a different but related question. If one feels compelled, and by that I mean if Congress and state policymakers feel compelled to subsidize ways to reduce the amount of oil used by vehicles on roads, would hybrids make more sense? The short answer is yes, of course, because EVs simply don't make economic or practical sense for any significant and foreseeable way of saving a lot of oil. And by that, I don't mean EVs don't reduce oil use on highways. Of course they do. But the total oil savings would be far smaller than most realize and at an enormously high cost and great inconveniences, as I've explained at great length in my series on EVs. We'll come back to both those realities in a minute to summarize them for those who haven't listened to the previous series. But first, if policymakers are consumed with the desire to subsidize means, again, for consumers to reduce oil use, there's a far better option that's both viable and cheaper. And again, that option is needed is that, that that a cheaper option is needed is beyond obvious to middle income and lower income buyers of cars when they go to a showroom and see sticker prices for EVs, even after government subsidies. And that a cheaper option is needed should be obvious given the latest results from Ford and GM, who reported uh, losing tens of thousands of dollars for every EV they sell. It would be easier, faster, and transparently verifiable, and again, cheaper per barrel of oil saved, to incentivize consumers to purchase whatever they wanted 
that involved a more efficient vehicle than they currently owned. It should seem obvious. That would be that vehicle could be uh, one or either a, a vehicle with a better engine or an engine that was hybridized. I, I should stipulate that I'm no fan of forever subsidies. But for the sake of discussion, and because it's a question I often get, if EVs, again, are lousy and deeply un unfair ways to deploy subsidies to save oil, would hybrids be better? Well, subsidies redirected away from wealthy EV owners would buy far more and more documentable emissions and oil reductions per dollar of those subsidies. If they're offered, for example, to what are called gasoline super users, the super users uh, are the 10% of drivers that consume about one third of all gasoline. And many of those super users are the people, you know, who drive a long distance to work to take the service jobs at hotels and restaurants, who mow lawns, who build the infrastructures. It's easy to document who, who's a super user and deserves a super credit. It's obvious with the vehicle's odometer mileage when inspected or sold or it's traded in. And subsidizing either or both lower income car owners or super users it's a policy that'd be far fairer and in economist lingo, more progressive. I don't mean the modern meaning of that word, but, but rather the opposite of a regressive tax. Combustion engines already exist or are readily feasible to build that can cut fuel use by up to 50%. And the cost penalty for such engines is far less than the premium costs for an electric vehicle. And self-evidently, the far more efficient combustion engine doesn't have any other refueling, operational, or convenience challenges that EVs have for most for most drivers. Wealthy drivers with several cars don't have any inconvenience in either buying or charging an EV in their garage and getting subsidies from everybody else, including the local utility. Anyway, even the International Energy Agency analysts calculated, though they've been very quiet about the results, they haven't publicized it, they calculated that improvements in conventional automobile fuel efficiency could display something like threefold more petroleum by 2040 than would putting 300 million EVs on the world's roads. Keep in mind that we haven't got to 20 million EVs yet. And it's gonna be very hard to get to 300 million, possibly impossible in the timeframes that people hope for. Anyway, if subsidies are the only path policymakers wanna pursue, why not let the consumer choose the best option for a vehicle that meets the specific goal of the subsidy? That sounds fair. And again, it's far more cost-effective. Odds are that an overwhelming majority of consumers would apply their fuel savings credits to a hybrid. I mean, combine ultra-efficient internal combustion engine with a, the hybrid architecture, and you get tremendous fuel savings. Hybrids, as most people know, use a battery with an engine to optimize the efficiency of the conventional car's engine, in particular in stop and go driving. Hybrids dramatically cut the fuel use around in around town driving and, and at a, a tiny fraction of the cost per bale of oil saved. And while hybrids do cost more, of course they cost more than conventional vehicles because they have more power electronics uh, and they have the extra battery, but far, far, less, far less of an increase in power electronics and a far smaller battery than EV. Uh, in fact, the battery is typically one-tenth to one-twentieth the size of the EV. That by itself explains why there's a huge cost benefit and materials usage benefit and a weight benefit in the hybrid architecture compared to all EV. For those who aren't gearheads, the, so the non-cognoscenti in automobile technologies, let me, let me just 
briefly note that there are actually three types of hybrids. The most common, which is pioneered by the uh, Toyota Prius, uh, which some people like to make fun of and some people love driving. It's a very popular car. Toyota can't make enough of them. It has a very small battery that is used in combination with power electronics to optimize a small engine's combustion efficiency. And that, that feature has turned up in lots of cars um, in recent years. In fact, they're say close to the majority now have a the so-called uh, stop-start function. That is, the engine isn't running when you're stopped at a stop sign or a stoplight comes on quickly as soon as you pull away because it has the ability to drive a very short distance, depends on the design, you know, tens of feet to hundreds of feet on the battery and the electric drive and restarting the motor. In some cases, the motor is, the battery is used just to restart the motor, saving fuel while you're idling. That's a light hybrid architecture. By the way, some automakers haven't been so as clever as Toyota at making sort of seamless, uh, non-noisy um, start-stop functions, but they'll get there. The other architecture is the so-called plug-in hybrid, which still has a combustion engine, but also a far bigger battery than a regular hybrid, big enough to drive 30 to 50 miles on a single charge. So a typical day's drive for a lot of people. A lot of people don't drive more than 15 to 20 miles in a day. So the battery can be used to drive two or three days around town, charge episodically overnight uh, conveniently for those who want a car can do both things. Uh, it also means that the both things, so when you can't get a recharge or want to go more than 50 miles, you have a regular gasoline tank and a regular gasoline engine. And of course, that gives the consumer, the owner, all the conveniences of a conventional car for distance and refueling. And similarly, the convenience of not paying a high price for a battery that's five to 10 times bigger. And dealers are um, reporting, by the way, that the hybrids are the hot ticket in recent months, and uh, EVs aren't. Uh, buyers seem far more eager uh, to buy the light battery rather than the battery-only option. And there's a third uh, hybrid architecture, I should mention, one that's been used for quite a long time in heavy industrial equipment and trains and likely will soon come to uh, aircraft. That's uh, what's called a series hybrid. That is, there's an onboard engine uh, using gasoline or diesel fuel that functions exclusively as an electrical generator, kind of a personal power plant. Operate that way, engines can be extremely efficient. And the battery size, like the plug-in hybrid, is also extremely small and is used to ensure the you know, optimal efficiency of whatever, you know, acceleration or lifting loads. But the drivetrain itself is pure electric, just like uh, a battery electric car. But the fuel is not pure battery, it's the generator plus gasoline or diesel. Odds are you'll start seeing uh, that option show up for small trucks before long and then eventually for, for a lot of cars. It's an extremely efficient uh, and elegant means to optimize the best of both worlds, which is electric drive, power electronics controls, and the incredible fuel and energy density of uh, petroleum. All of these hybrid architectures eliminate or radically alleviate the challenges of the uh, putative all-battery EV future. It, it, perhaps in a nod to reality, and then maybe maybe it's a cynical view, but as a way to inflate EV progress, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, they include hybrids in their tracking uh, numbers and PR. So when they began their 2023 global EV outlook uh, in order to tout that EVs are making, quote, exponential growth, his sales exceeded 10 million in 2022, which they did. And 
they uh, they include hybrids. Uh, you, you'd be excused for thinking that when IEA publishes a report about EVs, they're really talking about battery-only EVs, and that's what the numbers would be about. But in fact, uh, nearly one-third of all the sales of, quote, EVs in 2022 were hybrids. So they are, um, just say, inflating the appearance of the sales of EVs. Perfectly reasonable to point out that they are electrified vehicles because all three hybrid architectures are electrified vehicles, but they're not pure battery electric vehicles. And need I remind that hybrids, by definition, use combustion engines that policymakers are eager to ban. So promoting EVs with combustion engines, hybrids, is more than a little disingenuous when, uh, on the other hand, we're promoting the banning of of internal combustion engines. It's also relevant to the to hyperbole around uh, EV sales that nearly two thirds of all the all battery, the pure battery EV sales are now in China, which is a special case in, in every sense, not least because of massive embedded inherent uh, subsidies in their industrial ecosystem, but also because China's EVs are in fact essentially coal-fired. That grid is two thirds coal, and at night, when most charging happens, it's an even higher share. Anyway, let me help frame uh, why the hybrid solution is a far saner, saner way to uh, waste taxpayers' money on subsidies rather than all battery, pure battery EVs. To frame that, uh, let's spend a few minutes. I need to revisit the answers to two key, key questions. So the first question is, as I said at the outset, EVs won't save as much oil as people imagine, then the question would be, how much oil could battery-only EVs, in fact, really eliminate? Obviously, the related question are, is what are the impediments to achieving even those oil savings by using battery-only EVs at scale? Now, the first question is you know, arithmetically easy to answer. Before I do, I'll point out again, for those who haven't listened to my earlier four-part podcast series and EVs, you could you could find it, uh, click on it, and subject yourself to a lengthy disquisition on the realities of EVs. Um, but I have to assume that all of, not all of you have listened to that. So if I might just spend a few minutes at the very high level summarizing so the, the, the two key points. Um, you know, again, how much oil could battery EVs really eliminate? And what are the impediments to doing it that way? The first question, how much, is arithmetically easy to answer. It's uh, at least in terms of the maximum possible number. The arithmetic requires knowing a couple of knowable facts. The total number of cars in the world and the share of all the world's oil used by those cars. Pretty obvious. Today, there are about 1.4 billion cars using about 30% of all petroleum. So doing the arithmetic, that, that means today's 20 million EVs comprise under 2% of all light-duty vehicles and thus are displacing, at most, under 0.5% of global oil demand. Even that overstates the current, current state of affairs because the data show that the average EV is driven about half as many miles a year as the average conventional car. But you say, what about the future? Well, continue the arithmetic. Pick the most optimistic forecast that you might believe or hope for it for the number of EVs that could be on the road a decade from now, say the several hundred million number. Getting there would require an astonishing growth, not just in production, but also consumer adoption. But set that aside, assume 300 million EVs a decade from now, 
that arithmetically works out to eliminating less than 10% of today's world oil demand, less than 10%. That's hardly a tipping point for the end of the oil age. And the key word is today's oil demand. The calculation ignores the inevitable fact that a decade from now, the world will use more oil than today for flying freight trucks and industrial production of all kinds. It's not just me saying it, even the EV happy IEA, International Energy Agency again, forecasts that increases in those other uses for oil, flying trucks, industrial production, will offset nearly all the decreased oil demand from even the most wild-eyed growth for EV adoption. So there won't be net-net an increase in global oil demand, but it'll just plateau in their words. Could be, if you get that many EVs on the road, improbable is is beyond obvious is my opinion. And in no small irony, the faster the governments push adoption for EVs, the more that will increase industrial oil use because in particular of a largely ignored fact, EVs do use oil, but invisibly upstream and all the heavy equipment and big chemical processes used to acquire, move and refine the 500,000 pounds of the earth that have to be dug up to obtain the minerals needed to build a single EV. Yes, I know, I can hear you thinking, there are similar upstream processes needed to build a conventional car too. Of course there are. But to understand the details, to go back to my four-part series, but as a refresher for those who didn't listen, who haven't read what I've written about this, simple fact, EVs are far heavier and are built from a different suite of minerals. That, that require far more energy-intensive mining and materials handling. In weight terms, a conventional car is about 85% iron and steel, while an EV's weight is dominated by copper and aluminum and a variety of other minerals, depending on the battery type, of course, lithium, graphite, nickel, manganese, and so on. And none of those are used or not significantly used to build a regular car. That really changes the game in mining terms, in terms of tonnage of stuff moved and the energy cost of moving it and, of course, the economic cost of getting those materials. The world's mining industry uses a lot of energy, nearly all of which, despite you know some PR stunts, is diesel, coal, and natural gas, and will be for a very long time. Overall, in fact, global mining, the global mining sector uses 40% of the world's industrial energy. And the kinds of plans and aspirations for EVs that the IEA and others have will require an unprecedented increase in global mining, and therefore, global mining use of oil, and natural gas and coal. So I've discussed again in earlier episodes that mining will be elsewhere and for quite a while, regardless of virtual signaling policies about reshoring. America is not a friendly place to opening up mines at scale. And even in places that are friendly to that, it takes a long time. And that's where the upstream sort of elsewhere consumption of oil and other hydrocarbons happens to build, happens. And that's to, to build the EVs in the first place. And of course, that's where the challenge resides in terms of um, getting enough of those minerals at a price people can afford. Those are the, the impediments, in effect, are dominated at the two ends of the spectrum with EVs, getting enough materials to build them, and then getting enough materials and spending enough money to fuel them on the roads, the two ends of the spectrum of the sort of infrastructure. We can expect there'll be some fairly predictable, predictable um, consequences as the world starts to really chase uh, energy minerals to build EVs at scale. And because the data show that the world's mining industries are not now, nor planning to, produce enough minerals to meet the production levels needed to build the quantity of EVs that the subsidizers want to have on the road. 
course, it's a basic tenet of economics that when demand outstrips supply, prices rise. That has the obvious effect of increasing the cost of the things made from the higher cost inputs. And keep in mind that the material inputs uh, account for about three-fourths of the cost to make a battery for an EV. So EVs will get more expensive as demand for the minerals rises, not cheaper. That will lead to another economic reality. Higher prices will suppress sales. Or EV makers could choose to absorb those higher costs, which leads to lower profits for the only two EV companies making money and deeper losses for all the rest. Or the higher costs will require government to increase subsidies, which necessarily eventually means more taxes or inflation or both. Higher prices for minerals, of course, will also stimulate engineering workarounds. Engineers are good at that. They find ways to solve problems, but options that are viable at higher prices are by definition enabled by those higher prices, which means those options don't reduce overall cost by any significant amount. Rather, they find a way to work around the shortage of supply of the materials because it's the shortage that led to the higher costs. There are dozens of different chemical formulations for lithium batteries for workarounds. They can, they can avoid one mineral by substituting for another. For example, cobalt can be eliminated by using more nickel and so on. But there are always trade-offs. One of the biggest challenges with the most alternatives to most of the popular lithium battery chemistries is that the alternatives all have lower energy density. Now, that means to keep the same range that consumers prefer with, a, with uh, the vehicle, lower energy density means a less energy per pound of battery, so you need a heavy battery, which uses more copper and other metals like aluminum. There's no easy way out. There's no free lunch, as they say, when it comes to the fact the EVs require an inherently greater use of non-iron metals, which is, again, to beat the point to death, the biggest impediment to rapidly expanding subsidies or not, the quantities of EVs in the world's roads. Yes, there's a constant deluge of sort of clickbait about a battery breakthrough that would one day, it could one day make a bigger difference. That is, high ener higher energy density or more energy with fewer pounds. Some of the claims are meaningful, some are true, but none change the fundamental reality, that's reality that storing energy in batteries uh, involves a huge increase in vehicle weight compared to just using gasoline. To my point, highly efficient internal combustion engines that are hybridized. It's also true that uh, for those of you who follow this field, there's been some fascinating news coming out of China uh, that BYD, this is now the world's biggest EV maker, just surpassing Tesla, that BYD uh, is now selling a tiny, so low-end EV that has an entirely new class of battery, a sodium ion instead of a lithium ion, ion battery. It's quite an accomplishment, frankly, and it's reportedly some 20% cheaper than the next cheapest EV battery. But it has a lower energy density, which again means either less range or heavier battery which involves more materials and minerals, especially, again, copper, which is the long pole in the tent, as they say. As an aside with some perhaps obvious irony, uh, just as the first lithium battery was invented at Exxon by an Exxon lab in the early 70s, it was not many years after that that was also an Exxon research team that introduced the idea of using sodium ions instead of lithium ions to make a battery. But it's BYD, a Chinese firm that first put such a battery on the street. In addition, it's in China where we find the overwhelming majority of all the world's refined battery chemicals and components produced that are needed to assemble batteries. 
So these battery factories you hear about are battery assembly plants using key and critical refined chemicals and components produced elsewhere. Uh, and as I said many times, and as some media outlets are now reporting, China is the dominant elsewhere in the global market. It, China's market share in battery chemicals and components is roughly double OPEC's market share for oil. Of course, that reality means that both non-Chinese, American, and European battery and EV makers uh, in, we'll call it, open cahoots with Chinese suppliers are eager, eagerly exploring ways to get those Chinese inputs qualified for the massive subsidies and credits in the infamous Inflation Reduction Act. You can take it to the bank that they'll find a way <laughs> because if they don't, there won't be the materials needed to manufacture the batteries and all those factories that are being assembly plants are being built. And, and if they don't, they'll be too expensive. So in fact, there's already reports that some billions of dollars in joint ventures have already started or been you know, announced between a Chinese suppliers of these critical materials with, for example, South Korean battery companies that would potentially uh, qualify because South Korea is a, a favored trading partner, potentially qualify those battery components for U.S. subsidies. Uh, the jury is out on whether or not that will qualify, but again, uh, color me cynical. Uh, the rules have not been uh, cast in concrete, and because they're written elastically, odds are very high. That's what we'll see happen. So U.S. subsidies will be flowing to battery companies and joint ventures in U.S. states, partnered with South Korean companies, supplied by, you know, drumroll, Chinese companies producing the key materials and chemicals. Uh, this may be fine uh, in your mind. It's, I'm not in this podcast going to make a judgment call whether that's good, bad, or indifferent. I happen to think it's something of a problem because it gives China pricing power, not to mention, um, we'll call it market manipulation power. For those who don't think China will never employ uh, that market power, I point you to go and find Dr. Google to note what China has done recently with graphite and germanium and gallium. Graphite is used in all EV batteries. China produces 90% of the world's battery graphite and recently announced that they were going to look at um, controls on who they would export it to because it's a, quote, dual-use technology that might be used for purposes other than batteries. Say batteries for tanks, the military purposes. That's kind of like calling oil a dual-use dual technology that could be used to drive cars or fly uh, fighter aircraft. Yeah, of course it is. Anyway, they announced a, a policy that hasn't been implemented. They just announced the policy. They'll be looking at restricting exports of graphite uh, to certain uh, uh, countries and users based on the potential for that graphite to be quote unquote misused. It is perhaps no surprise uh, that that announcement came immediately on the heels of the U.S. administration ratcheting up uh, constraints on export of high-end computer chips. You can see where this is going to go. Anyway, perhaps more important in the near term is regardless of whether we use China's sodium ion or lithium ion technology, the majority of the battery and chemical components will require purchases from China for a long time. Um, and even if you change battery chemistries, it doesn't solve the challenge of the two key metals for the all EV future, aluminum and copper, not lithium, not graphite. Those are important or cobalt, still important. 
Aluminum is needed to minimize the weight penalty the EV batteries impose. Batteries are half a ton that makes the car very heavy. Use lots of aluminum to offset that weight. Notably, China makes, produces 60% of the world's aluminum on its coal-fired grids. These are the kind of realities that uh, are particularly important, especially for copper. It's the one electric metal for which there are precious few options, regardless of battery type. In nearly all electrical applications, copper is either irreplaceable or difficult or expensive to replace. And when it's being replaced at all in the main, it's by using aluminum. But of course, higher prices for metals and minerals will, of course, uh, stimulate suppliers to produce more, something that I'm told often in debates. Uh, that eventually means, eventually, the prices come back down because eventually the market gets oversupplied. This is the nature of all commodities. The question one would want answered, however, are the, and it's the kind of questions that, uh, the kind of question that commodity traders and, and now some policymakers are thinking about how long does it take for the higher prices to stimulate more supply, for specifically for uh, minerals, for EVs, for batteries? How long does it take to open a new copper mine or a nickel mine? There's a lot of data in history to answer that question. A decade would be fast. Collateral question would be, how long do prices have to stay elevated for mining companies to take decadal decisions, decadal risks in putting billions, sometimes tens of billions of dollars of investment into a new mine and one that won't yield revenues for a decade or more? But what the data show so far in terms of what's actually been announced or planned in the mining industry, the global miners seem skeptical that the EV mania will continue long enough to support such high-risk, high-cost expansions. In fact, we're beginning to hear warnings from some of the executives of those mining companies themselves that the necessary supplies will not be available in the short times imagined by policymakers and pundits that make PowerPoint forecasts for an all-EV future. None of this is news to any of you who've listened to my earlier podcasts or read what I've been writing. And it's a reality that's slowly building up and bubbling to the surface of policy considerations and popular media coverage of EVs. And that's why I'm beyond, I think it's beyond obvious that the EV aspirations aren't going to happen, but it's perfectly reasonable in sort of a political trade to ask the question, What's the option? If I really, I've got all this money sloshing around to subsidize lower oil use, what are my options? Well, I answered it. If we feel if we feel compelled to do something with subsidies, subsidize highly efficient engines, especially hybridized ones. So that's it for another whack-a-mole session regarding EV claims and batteries and the like. We're going to try and leave EVs alone for a while in future podcasts. <laughs> well, unless you know, some other really silly claims are made or something relevant happens, of course. Anyway, I do want to come back to um, revolutions of transportation in some future podcasts. I will do that because uh, there are some really interesting things happening and really happening um, that are intriguing. Um, so we'll explore things like cars that can walk, which is kind of fun, uh, and cars that you know fly, which have been imagined for a long time, but are no longer crazy. We'll talk about some of the technical impediments and opportunities there as well in future podcasts. Real revolutions in transportation. It's not a revolution to change the fuel for a conventional car. That's both different, and as I said over and over again, than changing the food for a horse. The transition from horse to car was a change of consequence. Changing the food is important and interesting, but not a revolution. 
So for now, that's a wrap. Remember, if you're enjoying these podcasts, take the time, give us a rating. We like good ratings, but we'll <laughs> we'll take criticism and we'll answer your questions and objections. In recent weeks, I've been getting emails from a number of you, um, quite a number actually, with questions and observations. That's great. Uh, if you prefer that mode, keep them coming. You can find me at the Manhattan Institute or at my tech-pundit.com website. Uh, send me questions, send me observations. Uh, some of them, I, I answer pretty much everything that comes in other than, you know, annoying insults. <laughs> and sometimes I might answer those. But until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for this episode of The Last Optimist. Thank you.